It was their fourth day in the hospital, and Laura and her husband were rolling their baby girl, Zuri, down to her first barium swallow study. They were trying to figure out why she was having so many feeding difficulties. As they reached the hospital elevator, Zuri's doctor ran to join them because he had their genetic test results. As the elevator doors closed, the doctor informed them that Zuri had something called DeGeorge syndrome. This was the beginning of their 22Q journey. Welcome to the 22Q podcast. My name is Becky White, and today we have my friend Laura, who is on with us. Laura, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, gosh. Thank you for being here. I first met Laura at the most recent mom retreat um, funded and hosted by the 22Q Family Foundation. And shoot, we were actually uh, went to the airport together early, early in the morning on the last day. So that's how we connected and met was honestly through the transportation and getting to and from the airport. But after the retreat, Laura and I have been kind of chatting through email and quickly becoming friends and talking about our passions of traveling. Do you want to touch upon that a little bit, Laura? <laughs> oh man, this is, that's going to be another topic. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> but we found out that, um, we both love to travel, both been to Australia and, um, prior to children, we had different lives, <laughs> very, very different lives. And that's good. And so, um, what I, my takeaway from our friendship is that we're going to continue traveling, maybe just us, girl trip every year, <laughs> every like year, it. somewhere epic. That would be yes. amazing. I love it. Yes. Maybe we could get a traveling 22Q moms group <laughs> and get funded through someone like Apple or, you know, someone that has Apple, a lot of money. Yeah. yeah we got to, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but today we're going to talk about your 22Q journey and your beautiful little girl. So if you wouldn't mind, just please introduce yourself, where you live, what you do, and then tell us about your beautiful family. Well, like you said, my name is Laura. Um, my husband and I, we and my two little girls just moved from Denver a year ago to a wonderful little town here in Brookings, South Dakota. Um, we were originally from North Dakota, but after college, my husband and I got married, spent our first 14 years in Denver, playing in the mountains, doing all things outdoors, hiking, camping, snowboarding, and traveled as much as possible. And then, um, yeah, decided, um, after children and COVID and all of the political climate that it was time to move closer to family. So mm -hmm. We've been back in this smaller um, cul-de-sac with neighbors now for a year, and it's been really good. Good. And tell me about your daughters. You, you have two daughters. What are their names? Yes. So my oldest one is five. Her name is Ezra. And my younger one, who was born, you know, 12 months and maybe two weeks after, um, <laughs> is Zuri. And she's our one with 22Q. And tell me, you know, what do you do for work now? What was your passion and, um, your, your background before becoming a mom? Yeah, I worked in Denver as a radiation therapist for about 12 years going part-time after kids and then basically quit right before Zuri's first birthday as we were kind of in and out of hospital so much. It just wasn't feasible anymore, um, to try to keep that strict schedule and so I ended up quitting that and trying to take up, <laughs> um, I found a mentor and started taking up day trading futures. And so um, as much as I could get a break and uh, do as much education and learning on that, that's kind of what I poured into besides um, my kiddos. The, the great thing is it's fully flexible. And I just, yeah. I, I think I started it. Um, just to kind of have an out because Zuri was so sick and mm -hmm. I needed, I needed to obsess about something that just was not her anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how it started. And now I'm continuing the journey and uh, yeah, it, that's, this is now one of my bigger challenges in life. <laughs> yeah. Well, good, good. It's good to have those other challenges and it's good to, you know, recognize, you know, once these kiddos take a lot of, of doctor's appointments and, um, a lot of attention. And it's good that you have another 
way to focus your attention on something else. Great. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just please share your 22Q journey? How did this start? When did you first get the diagnosis? Tell me about it. The 22Q diagnosis started when Zuri was four days old. So we were wheeling Zuri down to uh, get a barium swallow study as she was having feeding difficulties and trying to find more and more answers. And um, the doctor met us in the elevator and he's like, hey, the chromosomal test results came back. Your daughter actually has DeGeorge. So don't go back to your room and Google this. I will come back to you and we will talk about it. Okay. So of course, doctors you know, are busy. And I had hours and hours to Google and research and dive mm-hmm. headfirst into Google and scare myself to death. And I was devastated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, so day four, just diving headfirst into learning that there is 180 plus things associated with it. And then trying to talk to the doctor about all of the questions when he did come. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot at first. Mm-hmm. So you found out through the, through the blood test and the genetic test. Did you have any idea during your pregnancy? Was there any heart or any other things that came up through your ultrasounds that were kind of indicating that something could be going on? Yes. Yes. And no. Um, my first child was kind of an emergency C-section at 31 weeks. And because of this, and then I had, I wanted a V-back 12 months later, I had the best of the best doctors, high risk mm-hmm. clinics and all of that. And even with some of the best techs and doctors, I was transferred to several different clinics and every single tech and doctor told me that they could not see the right chamber of the heart. Uh-huh. And this should have been a big red flag. Um, but for whatever reason, I kept getting just pushed and pushed to a new person, a new person, and nobody would give me uh, a yes or a no that something was wrong until I think it was our sixth or seventh ultrasound and probably our third different doctor that just said, you know, I think I see what I need to see. I don't think you should worry about this. Okay. And it was at that moment that I was like, great. And I just, she told me what I wanted to hear. And the unfortunate piece is (laughs) had she not, our whole story would have started much different and it would have been a game changer. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? Um, Because, (laughs) and I mean, this this poor doctor, she, it probably could have been fine. And 90% of the time it is fine, but in my case, it wasn't. And so I went into deliver wanting a VBAC, signing my life away and my baby's life away for a VBAC. And after 29 hours of labor, three epidurals and oh my God. another 10 pain telling them something's not right. Something's not okay. Maybe I'm like, I'm trying to diagnose myself. I'm like, I maybe no very birth. Like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like vomiting. I'm shaking. I'm like, something is not okay. Oh my and gosh. over and over again, I hear the nurses just say labor hurts, labor hurts. And it's like, I just had a C-section 12 months ago, never took pain meds for it. I climb mountains. I hike. I, I know what a little bit of pain is and this is not okay. Right. But anyways, um, you don't know what you don't know. They said all my levels were fine. And so we went ahead and 29 hours later, we are able to push out Zuri who she throws her on my chest and immediately rips her off as she was literally blue, like a dark blue and kind of unresponsive. So, um, so yeah, so this is why it was all would have been nice to know there was a heart defect. We would have done everything differently. So I wouldn't have had to go through all that trauma. So they, they ripped her away, took her down to NICU, still didn't know what was going on. Um, did your husband go with her or were you alone in the operation room? I was all alone. Um, just, yeah, in the room all by myself, husband was gone and the doctor comes in, um, several hours later with me still not knowing if my baby was alive and basically made me feel a little guilty that I wanted the V back and kind of put it on me that my baby 
probably has severe HIE, which is there's not enough oxygen to the baby. And for a certain period of time, so there could be permanent brain damage and my baby could be potentially brain dead. And she kind of put that on me. And so I'm in the room <laughs> by oh myself my feeling the guilt of wanting a VBAC and having a normal baby to now thinking I might have a vegetable. And so anyway, um, during this whole process, my baby is then, you know, needing to go to a bigger hospital to kind of do the cooling down process, which kind of slow down the brain damage and just kind of give the baby a fighting chance at, you know, slowing down any potential damage. And so during that process, they have to go ahead and do all of the scans. And during the scanning of the kidneys and the brain and the heart and all of the things, they found she has a hole in her heart. So probably seven or eight hours later after she was transferred, um, we found out that she actually has tetralogy, which probably explains her APGAR score of one and her rough start to life. So her score was one. I think it was like one or two. It oh was, gosh. it was not good. Oh my and gosh. I did not even know if she was alive. It was, uh. it, was it was horrible. Um, yeah. And so we, we go from thinking, you know, first diagnosis of maybe our baby is a vegetable to now she has a heart defect. Um, those first few days, our NICU doctor was amazing. He found several other things and he kind of gave her the diagnosis of Vactral. And I can tell you what that is too, but it's like, you know, you have a heart defect, esophageal, fistulas, um, anal atresia, there's like seven things. Mm -hmm. And we knew at the time, our baby had at least three of the seven. So we started doing all the tests to kind of find out if she had more of the seven. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, everything is fixable. You know, mm -hmm. I was high spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and then at day four, after we did the barium swallow, we found out it was George and not seven, it's now 180. And again, you like hit by a bus, just mm -hmm. hard. What, so in that moment, you're, you're just, just gave birth. They rushed her away. Your husband's with her. Was your husband able to like talk to you through text to update you what was going on? Or were they not even updating him? They weren't even updating him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And was it at yeah. a different hospital at this point or were they, was she still in the same hospital? So she was at a different hospital within okay. hours, they had her transferred and then they actually were able to transfer me as well. Oh, good. That was my so, next question. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was really good. Um, the other, the other part where I was like frustrated that we didn't catch the heart defects sooner um, in utero is I would have not have an, given birth because I ended up having a ruptured uterus. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I was transferred um, to the bigger hospital to, to be with my child, but I'm still unable to walk and in so much pain, no drugs could touch the pain. And I kept telling and almost having to threaten that. I mean, I'm not a mean threatening person, but I was just like, something's not okay. You need to do something. And so after I pushed and pushed, they did an ultrasound and found out that I was pretty much full of blood and oh that was gosh. the issue. So, um, and it's a mix of emotions because it was hard and, um, I had to make more decisions for my own health. Like, do I do another C-section so they can open me up and clean me out? Do I do a laparoscopic? Do I just deal with the pain for a month until my body absorbs all the blood? So, I mean, I was, I was not even mentally able to like kind of deal with it all yeah. as I was in so much pain and I couldn't even walk to go anywhere or do anything by myself, mm -hmm. um, during that whole process anyway. Right. But at least we're at the same hospital and, mm -hmm. um, kind of, we both started off pretty rough. Yeah. Do you remember those days looking back now? Um, I think, I think I try not to when, when I used to first talk about it, I, I think I had so much, I think the pain was so intense. I would just be brought to tears. Truthfully, just could not talk about the experience without kind of having flashbacks of that much pain and the anxiety or the fear it was it was just I think pretty traumatic because I just remember not talking much about it or if I did mm -hmm. I would just 
kind of lose it just mm-hmm. trying to explain it or talk about it. So mm-hmm. extreme trauma, extreme trauma, terrifying. Your daughter gets rushed away. Oh, yeah. It's that sounds awful. She took the feeding study and what was happening with her feeding at that point? Yeah. So we found out that she was actually aspirating. So, um, I even used to do x-ray before radiation. So I thought this was all kind of fun, you know, seeing and talking to the radiologist and like watching the imaging. And I was like, yep, there we go. You see it. And he only did it once. And he's like, no more aspirated right into her lungs. So at day four, we pretty much did just did the NG tube until she was scheduled for surgery. And then we had the G tube placed. Mm-hmm. Was that her first surgery? Yeah. And we, we doubled it. So she had, um, a slightly interior, this is a little odd, but anal entresia, she had a slightly interior anus. And so we had that taken care of as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, <laughs> we're told that some of these kids, um, might not be put together quite right or all they're of, just made this, differently. They're made so different. <laughs> they're and- the ones that are the 1% chance of oh, this is very rare, but it's probably not your kid. And then you laugh at the doctor and you say, no, this is my kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's exactly, that's exactly what it was. I think our, our NICU doctor even said, you know what? I can't imagine she's a chromosomal baby or has any defects. Um, I really think it's natural. And then four days later, he's like, I was wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So she found all that out. She went to operation. When did she go into operation? Was it like a five day five or six? after birth? Yeah, I think, I think within, uh, it was probably maybe day seven because when she was whisked away to the NICU, she, she had her, you know, umbilical IVs for at least four or five days. And, you know, you can't hold her, you can't touch her. Um, they just had to do all the blood tests and they just had the IVs hooked up for all of the testing stable enough until probably day seven. Yeah. Okay. So So they did the operation what happened after the operation? Did you guys get to go home within five to four days? What happened next? Yeah, I think we we're in the hospital two and a half weeks. Wow. So we got the diagnosis. Her thyroid was slightly elevated. So we, you know, got on some thyroid medication, had the surgery. And then I think we just had to have a bunch of healing and then a lot more testing. I think that's kind of what delayed us getting out of the hospital was trying to test for a lot of other things along with the hearing and trying to figure out the heart. Yeah. It was less than 30 days mm-hmm. and, and we were home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what was it like coming home? Easy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> actually, Were you relieved? Actually, what were you feeling? Yeah, I, I was relieved. I, I remember thinking that we were in trouble because we were in Denver just in an apartment, you know, before kids, we were just never home, always gone. We didn't want a house responsibility. And then um, two kids back to back. So we came home to a 12 month old child that was not walking yet and brought home a brand new baby that's connected to a tube and all of the things (laughs) and on third floor. So uh, I think in quick order, we moved to like the same building, just first floor. So I didn't Mm -hmm. have to haul up two children. And, and besides that, um, I, I kind of remember it going into kind of a routine pretty quickly. I mean, I was pumping and running after a 12 month old and Zuri was just so easy. She was content and, you know, (laughs) I, I joke because it is a joke. Um, about how G2 babies are the easiest thing ever. You know, I was like my, my first NICU baby, yeah, 31 weeks. I'm like her first year of life, she slept. That was easy. Now my G2 baby, I was like, this is, this is simple. I had her overnight feeds hooked up. Um, all I had to do was pump myself and getting her fed and everything, or even medication. It was just put it right through the tube and um, with a, you know, some of my background, none of that bothered me changing out yeah. her tube and, um, all of that was pretty uneventful. So yeah. I feel like the first few months, it was just kind of feeling like we were lucky again, mm-hmm. and maybe the worst was over. And maybe all this baby had was her 
at the time known four or five issues and mm -hmm. maybe that was it. Mm -hmm. So I think we were just kind of crossing our fingers that we were some of the lucky ones and we might be on an easy track from there. Yeah. So when did it start to seem a little bit more difficult? Was it the, what, when did she, and then also when did she get her heart operation? So the heart operation was put on for, for when she was seven months old. And, and truthfully, people keep asking me about this and, you know, that must've been so hard and that was so devastating and, you know, all of the things. And again, for me, I think medical, most things are straightforward, you know, there, there's a reason and you, you get it taken care of, you sew them up, you fix it and you move on. It's just kind of straightforward. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. I just, the hardest thing for me, I think, is taking my fat, happy little baby and actually like handing her over to the nurse after we signed all the paperwork for, you know, the worst case scenario. And I remember kind of just feeling heavy and uh, pretty emotional um, because, you know, you put in a baby at heart surgery and her heart is the size of a walnut. You mm -hmm. really don't know what's going to happen. But yeah. at the same time, it, it went smooth and her surgeon was amazing and everything was as anticipated. So her heart, <laughs> I have to say, is one of the easiest things that we dealt with her first year to year and a half of life. Yeah. That, that was pretty simple comparing to some of the other things that we did. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like you're very at peace with it. Like you knew what you needed to do, especially with your background, you knew how it worked and it didn't also come on as a sur surprise surgery or like you knew it was coming, but you still obviously had that emotional moment of handing over your child and which is natural. How was her recovery? Yeah. Um, this, this child, I don't know. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that these kids actually have a higher pain tolerance and it must be true. It truly must be true because she is, she is just a rock star. She's always been amazing and she recovers like nothing. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest hiccup in it all was this heart surgery was at seven months and right at six months, she threw up for her first time. And so this is, this is odd. So I'm going to backpedal a little bit. Her G-tube surgery was actually coupled with a Nissen fundoplication Okay. which is where they take the top part of the stomach and tie it around the esophagus to kind of help make it so there's not as much acid reflux. Okay. Because in these kids, I think it's very common for them to struggle with GERD, acid reflux, have to be on medication. And so our doctor at the time just said, this is common practice. This is kind of what they were pushing. Um, this way we don't need to worry about her having reflux or vomiting. And, um, we didn't know any better. So we just went ahead and went along with it. So we went and got that Nissen procedure done. And we were told that the side effect is she probably can't throw up. And so she's never spit up, never threw up. And really? then all of a sudden okay. at six months old, she was perfectly normal. Nobody was sick nobody even had a fever. She just threw up out of nowhere oh, and then no. was continually her normal little self. So, um, before the surgery, I was telling all her doctors, asking questions, Googling, researching, how is this possible? And because we're trying to stay healthy and kind of focus on the surgery, nobody really took it seriously. It was kind of a one-off thing in recovery. Um, she had it happen again, at least once or twice wow. where she was retching and vomiting for no explained reason right after an open heart surgery. Talk about yeah. horrible, uh, horrible thing. Uh, yeah, the, what were you thinking at that point? Like, uh, I mean, I, I was desperate for answers. And so the reason I say part of the heart was easy is because I immediately went into trying to find answers for this vomiting and retching. Because after her heart surgery, we brought her home, we were recovering, and then her um, retching episodes just kept increasing in length and duration, and it was so sporadic, and I was like meticulous about keeping track of her feeds, um, not feeding too fast, not overfeeding, 
you know, doing all the research, keeping track of what I did the previous time and for months and months and months was so careful about how we fed her and trying to find cause and correlation, correlation for it all. And it just, nothing made sense. And so then, because I couldn't come up with an answer and I was doing nothing different, I went again to Google, which who knows what Google says, and went through countless GI docs, um, even natural path doctors had so many different opinions, but nobody could give me any good answer um, except one of her 22Q docs said that his best guess would be that it's called Nissen-Retching syndrome and that the surgeon who did that Nissen fundoplication probably nicked the vagus nerve. And so the repercussions of this is that our child could have unexplained vomiting and retching sporadically for the rest of her life. Oh my gosh. And that this would be something she has to deal with um, moving forward. And there's no way to um, know it's coming or not. It's just, it can get irritated and then just happen. And so anyways, that was the only diagnosis that even made a little bit of sense, even though I didn't quite agree with a lot of it because why would it happen six months after surgery? And why would it be this slow progression into yeah. more and more when I was changing nothing. So, I mean, I think that was the hardest thing for me is just not knowing and searching for answers that weren't there. Um, at six months to about a year, right before her one-year birthday is when I ended up quitting my radiation therapy job just because she was doing one to two appointments a week. She was in OT, PT, speech, um, and we were just sick there'd be days where she would wake up and just be lethargic and limp and not able to do anything. And so I would just, I couldn't call into work anymore. I just couldn't do this. And so that's when I quit my job. And within days of me quitting um, was kind of at the worst of it for her, where we ended up in the hospital for like a week or two. And I remember having conversations with my husband, because at this point, it was two weeks, it was two weeks long of her just retching and, and vomiting. And we even switched out her G tube <clears throat> to a GJ tube. So the nutrition would actually go into the second part of her small intestine and she couldn't actually vomit it up, but wow. it didn't matter. It didn't matter what we did. I had her on that pump 22 hours a day, even diluted 90% with Pedialyte on Ugh. a drip. It would just barely drip. And I kept tweaking and tweaking from like those six months, from six months to her first birthday, just tweaking, barely trying to make it okay and keep, you know, diluting wow. more or diluting less and, mm-hmm. you know, increasing to 23 hours. And how long does she have to be connected to a tube, right? You know, having a one-year-old who wants to start crawling and, you know, is in PT and OT that's yeah. connected to a feeding tube. It was, it was so hard. And so we were in the hospital and I remember talking to my husband about what are we going to do if this continues to get worse? Because we were on this progression and at the time it was the worst of it and she was unable to function and losing weight, failure to thrive. Um, The doctors didn't know what to do and we thought we were going to have to do IV nutrition and have her connected in the hospital and we didn't see past that. We didn't know if we would ever be able to bring our baby home and be past <laughs> and take her off of the IV nutrition and ever have normalcy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I remember being like, do we continue down this path? Is this what people talk about keeping their kids on, you know, machines? And it was, it was just this hard, wild time. And at some point, you know, in the hospital, no doctors had any more clues and nobody had any idea. And we tried all the medications. And I think we're on 10 different medications at the time, plus inhalers, plus who knows. Yeah. So you're pumping your kid with all this stuff. You've been meticulously writing down her feedings. You've been trying to change the tube. You've been beating your head against the wall, making sure that your kid can keep something in her stomach and the doctors don't have answers for you. Like what 
that must have been so hard. I mean, I think that that has to be one of the hardest things I've ever been through. I was definitely at my my bottom, for mm-hmm. sure. Just, just at my bottom. Yeah, I can see you tearing up about it. I, I'm tearing up about it too. It's it's the one thing as moms and as parents in general is you want to make sure your kids are nourished and happy. And I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been and scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was beyond scary. And then you add on other complications because it was winter. Her birthday is January. So it was January, February. She started getting this cough that didn't go away and didn't go away. And so again, instead of seeing GI doctors, I started taking her into lung doctors. And like the first pulmonologist we saw looks at her and she's like, she probably has pulmonary lung disease. She's also most likely going to have asthma. And that's just kind of how it is. And I looked at her and I was like, no, you, you saw me for two minutes. You've not done any testing and you can't just give me a diagnosis like this. My child had no lung issues before this. And now we've been struggling with a cough for one month. And there is something else going on, mm-hmm. but she fully dismissed me. So <sighs> Um, one of my frustrations is, you know, trying to find doctors that will listen. Mm -hmm. And I took her to our pediatrician and this is after two months now of coughing. And, and the hardest part with this was her coughing would then trigger her retching and vomiting. So Mm -hmm. I would have her set up overnight on a slow drip. You know, we were doing it 20 some hours a day. And as soon as she would start coughing, I would jump out of bed, unhook her, stop the machine have her upright to try to slow down any potential retching or vomiting that she might experience from coughing up who knows dunk from her lungs. Oh my gosh. And then just try to like rock her back to sleep, lay her down, start it again. You know, an hour or two later, she'd cough again. It was weeks that I don't think I slept. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so um my pediatrician agreed to see me and I was in this desperate place. I brought my baby in and I'm just a wreck. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not sleeping. This is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Nobody's listening. This is not okay. And no. our pediatrician looks at her and right in front of him, she has an episode. She turns white, starts vomiting out of control. And he's like, wow, okay, this, this is not okay. So then he's the one who basically diagnosed her with pneumonia. We got her on antibiotics put her on some steroids, did a couple other things. And magically, magically, my baby just within a couple of days was as good as new, as far oh as the God. pneumonia goes. And so yeah. I don't, I was kind of kicking myself for waiting two months, right? I saw a couple of doctors, yeah. you just have to keep pushing. So anyways, the pneumonia kind of got cleared up. We kind of still were struggling with her retching, but it, it was slowing down sometime after her first year birthday. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it, it slowly was getting better. So I'm not exactly sure what happened with her retching. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically that was kind of the worst of it with the pneumonia. And then at another point, who knows what happened, but she had a seizure. So was that low sugars? Was it, um, her retching was it this and so we were also in the hospital again for trying to figure mm-hmm. out her sugar levels or her calcium levels yeah. um was it was one seizure retching? that happened or was it continuous yeah. well it was one grand mal seizure so she was basically oh I never want to experience that again but mm-hmm. um but yeah so that that was kind of her first year of life and um to make this whole story happy, <laughs> I mean, at, at the worst of it, with the seizure, with then having to take her home with like a blood glucose test and mm-hmm. prick her every couple hours. And um, we were on how many medications and creams for unknown rashes and mm-hmm. inhalers and all of the stuff. She magically, after the seizure, seizure just started getting better. And really? We, we will always forever celebrate um, July 2019 <laughs> wow. because at 18 months of age, she just 
magically has not having has never had another episode and she has not had another seizure and currently for unknown reasons got off every medication wow her feeding's amazing she eats what we eat and okay. uh, yeah how was that progression as she got bigger and the feeding like when did you take it out so with her feeding was always complicated right because she was so sick um as soon as she started getting better I just did a lot of reading about how these G2 babies struggle, right? Where they have like oral aversions, um, texture, they don't like their face to be touched, all of the things. They just struggle so much with all sensory. And so I was probably obsessive more so with, you know, putting stuff in her mouth for flavor, for taste, letting her touch stuff. Um, you know, every day for every meal, even though she had her pump sitting behind her feeding her, I had stuff on her tray for flavor and wow. she would just sit there and touch and feel it. Um, also she is a big sucker of yep. those nubs. And yep. so I like, she had five in her crib at one time. I'm like, I don't even care. You just have it all touching your face and, yep. you know, suck on your Good. thumb and, yeah. Her bigger sister would smother her with kisses. And so we Aww. just, we did a lot of occupational therapy with um, trying to get her to actually swallow. I remember yeah. that being a big thing because she would put stuff in her mouth, but then she didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And, and the work it took to yeah. actually have her learn how to move food from side to side, have her chew it, and then actually be able to move it around and to swallow. and to not choke and to actually have her brain learn how to do all of this was wild. It was a very, very slow process, mm -hmm. but I just remember the first time she ever took a bite and swallowed it. And I mean, I think I even journaled it. I celebrated it. I mean, it was, it yeah. was like the little things. It was yeah. just amazing. Mm -hmm. And slowly, but surely she started doing this. Mm -hmm. And, um, we just never allowed her to, um, be picky and it was tricky because she was losing weight out a while and, you know, failure to thrive. So how mm -hmm. do you balance that with right. a picky child and making her try things? So it was a very tricky balance. It probably helps that she can be bribed. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> oh, try <really>? this, <laughs> eat this, and then maybe you can have dessert or, yeah. right. um, Mm -hmm. however that goes. But I mean, it was a long, steady process. And uh, it was worth it. Because now yeah. I can be like, Oh, that was that was easy. That, that yeah. wasn't that wasn't so bad until I stopped to think about the year or two that it took to get there. And the work you put in you and your husband to get her the to work. that point is is tremendous. Um, yeah. I, it, it's a lot and just knowing to try and knowing to do those things and put the food in front of her, even though she wasn't going to eat it just to get her used to it. That's all. It's a lot of work. Yeah. She, she also needs to see you eating and have it normalized that this is what you do. And you put food in your mouth because you don't, you take all of this for granted. You just think kids naturally do things, but they don't. Exactly. And what are some of her favorite foods now? You know, dot pretzels, you know what dot pretzels are? They were made in, North Dakota originally, but now okay. I think they're distributed all over, but okay. he's like a savory, salty girl. And so there's oh. these very salty pretzels and from the start, her favorite food, she was like eat a bag of, I got to check them out. I'm going to write it down. Dots, yeah. Pretzels, Dot pretzels, man. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bacon, butter, dot pretzels. Those are her top and all now right. ice cream. Nice. If you just put leave butter in front of her, watch out. She will put Get out. dabs of butter on everything. <laughs> How'd you figure that out? Oh, well, <laughs> my, my husband makes these little evil fever. They're like these little round pancakes. And okay. you basically dip them in butter and cinnamon and sugar. Anyways. That sounds amazing. She, she the, the little dab you put on her plate, she would eat in one bite. You put another bit dab and she'd take the whole thing and eat it in one bite. And so we'd have to like portion it out. <laughs> portioning out your butter for the day. Exactly. I was <laughs> like, so oh man. Oh, good. So we did, does she have low tone? Was so she, I mean, by looking at her, you wouldn't be able to tell, you know, with her smile, um, she's pretty symmetrical, 
but she does have low tone um, and low muscle tone. So she was also very slow to walk, to crawl, to talk. Um, I don't know if it was because of low muscle tone or sickness or um, all her surgeries, but we didn't start doing any of those things until I think we're 18 or 20 months. Mm-hmm. So we were so delayed in all of those. Um, and even still now, um, I have a friend that's an OT and she's saying maybe we try gymnastics to try to um, build muscle strength because <laughs> her little uh, patella kneecap, she just pops it in and out, pops it oh. in and out all the time. And she's, she's this kind of a dainty little thing and building up some muscle strength would be very beneficial for her. So that's something we need to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very common. And it makes it tricky with the swallowing and the choking. And so I did also want to touch upon, you know, how is, you had mentioned OTPT and speech. And I was wondering, like mobility wise, how's she doing? Currently she's doing great. Um, I think we're in OTPT for at least two, two and a half years. I just remember like we couldn't even do stairs. We could not climb ladders at a playground. We, all the things you had to be so intentional about. And I think I forget how exhausting it was. You know, now that I talk about her eating, oh, she eats great. But that was years of work. And same with PT, getting her to walk, getting her to do stairs, like one foot at a time, having her feet plant, doing everything was never taken for granted and never easy. It was years of battling and and struggle and and now when I watch her at the playground she'll go one foot at a time and use alternating feet and she'll be able to go up and down that way she'll be able Mm -hmm. to run Mm -hmm. and and like I think that the I don't know miracle of it all is wearing off a little bit because you just you know after a few years of it kind of get used to it but Mm -hmm. it was at least two and a half years I think in PT just trying to work on crawling which was so hard and Mm -hmm. walking and then even walking a few steps everything was a lot more challenging than with my other child obviously Mm -hmm. and then for speech we're still doing speech so we started that and I think we're at least in year three just recently (laughs) we uh I think it was in March we found out that she actually has VPI like uh her palate doesn't fully close and I did not know that was a thing. So mm-hmm. how was this not caught? I knew she had a high arch palate. Right. How was palate. it not caught? You had been going. Right. She's been scoped so many times. So I, I think the only reason is because it must be so minor that they had to get her to comply. And not extremely hypernasal. Certain, certain sounds she can't say and so our speech therapists were just you know it's just repetition just repetition and now our whole strategy has changed and now that we're in Brookings um, we drive an hour an hour to a bigger city that actually has a VPI clinic with a special therapist who specializes in only working with these kids that um, wow. struggle with this. So through this VPI clinic and the speech therapist there, she told us of her ENT that actually does the FOP surgery, which we were recommended at the time we found out about the VPI. But she said for minor cases, he actually does this injection. And that was really interesting. And so doing recon and to find data on it, we went ahead and did that just in September. Mm -hmm. So how's it going? It's going well. Um, it's, I think it's too early to say because she, she was, it's a minor VPI with that filler, certain words uh, do sound better, but you also still have to learn how to talk again. We're still learning how to use it. And I think that's still going to take time, mm-hmm. but we went ahead and did the nasometer testing prior to the injection. And then after the injection and the numbers were vastly different. Like we're almost on normal range post-injection. Wow. So even though to my ears, it's, it's hard for me to hear that the nasal tone has decreased mm-hmm. um, to the nasometer and the computer, which I probably trust more. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that a lot of her sounds are actually closer to normal range. Mm-hmm. And so our speech therapist 
said, this is very encouraging and we're just going to take it a day at a time and mm -hmm. see how that goes. But mm -hmm. long in the long term, you know, if we still need to do more, the flap surgery is a potential down the road if, if we need to do something as extreme as that. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad it's going well. Their challenges that like, what are some things that she, that are challenging for her still and she's working on, and are there any other future operations in her future that you know of? Yeah. So the, the current one is, is the speech injection going to be good enough? Will we need to do the flap? Um, that's kind of in the back of my mind, but that we would push for at least another year until we kind of plateau with the speech. Um, we also know that her heart surgery is probably a pending five to 10 years down the road. Um, she had tetralogy and they left her pulmonary valve. So it's a leaky valve and they're saying it needs to get replaced, but pending how it holds up as she grows, um, we might be able to buy some time. So mm -hmm. those are the two main ones coming down the road at some point. I think we're kind of in this lull period where um, we're skating by easily with nobody knowing any different. Mm -hmm. And so she's chasing after kids. She's playing. She's trying to climb. She's trying to do a lot of jungle gym stuff. But because of her size, nobody's expecting that she can actually do the monkey bars or climb the big steps yeah. or, you know, talk really clearly. Nobody mm -hmm. expects these higher standards where some four-year-olds can do all of those things. Mm -hmm. And because she looks more like a three-year-old, nobody expects it. And she kind of gets away with a lot right now. So yeah. we'll, we'll see as time goes, how, how that unfolds, but right. Well, it's good. I'm glad that there aren't many stones ahead in the sense of like operations and stuff. I mean, good. Do you feel like it's wound down at all in the past four years with medical and, and doctor's appointments and specialists? Like, how does that, how's that been? Yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's wild to kind of think where we were like with her story, her first 18 months of life, we're talking weekly OT, PT speech, one to two appointments. And then because we were not sure where some of her issues were stemming from, we were in and out of hospitals for weeks at a time and just doing all the extra tests, all of them, right? We did like a sleep study and we did, oh man, I don't even know how many swallow studies and barium studies and um, checking out her whole GI tract and study after study and procedure after procedure, just, I mean, we even did a brain MRI. We did, we did all of the things and um, it just took up so much time because she was so, so sick. And then the moment she started getting better and better, we just went with it. And now we went from appointments once to twice a week to every three months. And now we're doing, um, we're heading back to Denver here in a month and we'll see everybody. We're seeing all of her doctors in a week period. And then after that, I'm hopeful minus speech that we can push the majority of those out to a year now. And that that's huge. So um, we do the 22Q in Anschutz, Denver. Very, um, when she was initially getting her cooling down process started, um, the doctors there just referred us out to all their doctors, right? Because it's in network. They want to keep the money in their hospital. And somebody reached out to me right before we were getting discharged saying, Hey, there is a 22Q clinic in Denver, only 15 miles from where you live. You should really check them out. And so she gave me the number and everything. And so I called the 22Q clinic with the number I had. And the main coordinator there happened to be gone for that week several times. And I didn't know who else to reach out to. And because we we're getting discharged in another day or two and had to basically touch base with a pediatrician within a few days and get follow-ups on all these other doctors, I just went along with the referrals because I didn't know what else to do. I talked to the doctor on the floor and was just like, do you know about this 22Q clinic? Like, what, what is that all about? Because I was so new. And he, he basically told me that um, they are no different. 
and their doctors also see 22Q kids and they see kids that all have all sorts of um, issues and their doctors here see a whole array. So it's really good um, for my daughter to see them because they see a vast array, not just solely 22Q kids. And so he, he very much kind of pushed how this was better. And, and looking back, I was like, I spent six months, six months fighting with these doctors and it wasn't their fault. It was literally not these doctors' fault that I was referred to. They just didn't know any better. And right. so my first six months, which I said was easy with Zuri, was frustrating in the aspect that ENT didn't want to scope, didn't want to do anything. She just wanted to prescribe anti-reflex. And I was like, we have the Nissen done. There is no reason to do reflex medications when we don't know the cause. GI wanted to put her on Zofran. That'll cause her to stop vomiting. Yeah, that's a great idea. But why is she vomiting? And, and it was just doctor after doctor giving me prescriptions. And I was just like, am I losing my mind? Right. Can you tell me what is going on? And it was just doctor after doctor that I was like, nope, nope. And I mean, working in medicine, you do have the crazy mom. You, you sure do. Yes, <laughs> so, you do. And I was like, okay, fine. I can be the crazy mom, but I am not just going to pump my kid full of stuff that I don't agree with and trust a doctor that's not giving me the time of day. And right. so one by one, I started just firing them. And then I slowly but surely did more research and started getting the doctors at the 22Q clinic. And as soon as I met the first one or two doctors, it was like a light bulb went off. It was night and day difference. They knew my kid, everything was understood. And they just started speaking my language. And I wasn't the crazy mom anymore. They were just like, yes, this and this and this. And and then I didn't have to feel like I had to advocate for every little thing. They uh, already knew it and they knew yeah. more than I did, which doctors should. <laughs> right. Parents and caregivers do need to hear that because think about yourself in that first 18 months. You're, you are sleep deprived. You are healing. You are trying to survive yourself and take care of yourself while also taking care of this medically fragile little girl. And all you want are answers and you do feel like the quote unquote crazy mom, because first of all, you're sleep deprived and you want your child to be okay. Every podcast I've recorded so far, every single person I've spoken to has said that by having a 22 Q kiddo has made them stronger as an advocate. What has this been like for you as a 22 Q mom? Do you feel stronger? Do you feel like you have a, a better voice and a better grip on trusting your gut? So much. I mean, you can, you can talk about personality profiles and some people are more able to kind of advocate than others. I feel like just depending on your personality. And if you do, if you do personality tests, my highest is a seven, which basically just means I'm up at for change and variety and adventure. And I don't order the same food at the restaurant ever. And my wing is an eight, which is a challenger. And that, that is where immediately, as soon as I had Zuri, I, I went to this challenger and, and I just, I think it naturally happens, but I just became questioning everything. And I'm like, okay, I had way too many bad experiences. You need to kind of earn the trust and show me you actually know what you're talking about because time after time, like, they, they missed the ultrasound for Zuri, right? They didn't, they missed it that I had a ruptured uterus and they didn't believe me because they just told me labor hurts. We were pushed with Zofran and all of these different drugs they were trying to push at me. My pulmonologist told me she had pulmonary lung disease and didn't believe me. She had like what we now know is pneumonia for months. And over and over again, you just have these experiences and it just, makes that mama bear come out and it's like, this is not okay. And now I feel like I'm permanently in this position where <laughs> I, I need to um, agree with you and I'm not going to be swayed any, anyway. Mm -hmm. And earlier on with that Nissen fundal placation, had I known better, I would have never done it. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe, 
that was the right diagnosis with her retching from that. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But other moms I talked to later on said that they were surprised that she had that because their doctors told her they don't do that anymore. Wow. It's just so important to kind of do your research, do your recon and advocate for your kid with what you think works because Mm -hmm. you're the one dealing with it and your baby's the one living this life and you're the only one that cares this Exactly. Yep. And it's frustrating when, like you've said in the past in this interview, you have the doctor walk in for two minutes and they diagnose something and you're like, well, well, no, I don't agree with that. Here's why. And they're like, no, this is what it is. And it's like, well, I'm with them every day. I know exactly what they're like. And you're diagnosing them in two minutes and not listening to word I'm saying, or willing to even do another study or another blood draw or something else to agree with me or disagree. You're just set in your ways. Yeah, no, it's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating for sure. Um, but I think your story and your ability to believe in your gut and also fight for your little girl is so important because sometimes a lot of people feel like they don't have a voice. And especially when you're dealing with doctors, you know, some of us feel like we may not be as quote unquote smart as doctors. So they must be right. And so it is very intimidating to go against the doctor. For sure. Have you having now that she's four and going through all this, you know, what are maybe some struggles, if you don't mind sharing that maybe your friends and family don't see on a day-to-day basis, having a 22 Q kiddo? Um, I think a lot of moms struggle with it where our kids look normal. (laughs) And so they're treated normal, which is truthfully what you want. And so a lot of friends and family, they forget. And obviously it's easy to forget when, you know, we're in a good place right now, but what's been a big struggle is we have been off and on sick for four years mm-hmm. and, you know, her immune system is very poor and fighting off anything takes a long time. And because of COVID, <laughs> everybody is like hyper aware of sickness going around. And then, you know, everybody was isolated for a year. So when you put everybody back together, everybody gets sick. And Mm -hmm. so Zuri currently has this cough that's been hanging on for at least two weeks. And so I think a big struggle of mine has been feeling kind of accepted still. And, you know, keep your child at home. You need a quarantine. Zuri takes three, four weeks to get over something sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then it'll be the next thing or my next kid is sick. And it can be very isolating and lonely. Nobody gets it. And why are your kids always sick? Don't come get our kids sick. Or, you know, and I don't really think we're going to get other kids sick. You know, there's just a stigma with coughing now. And I think it's all heightened post-COVID too, with everybody being aware of sicknesses going around. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's just kind of been hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope her cough gets better. It's frustrating because like the simplest cold, it just, it takes forever for them to kick it and get rid of it. And people don't understand that, Um, but no, it's true. And if you could go back in time to when you first received her diagnosis, you're in the, in the elevator, you've got the diagnosis that your daughter has 22Q. If you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself in that moment? To not give up hope and to uh, find support. I, I did so much alone, I feel, and my husband feels very differently. <laughs> he was with me, he was with me, but he was working, you know, because I quit my job, he was working. So all of the appointments I did, all of the OT, the PT, all of it, it was like my burden and feeling like her chances of eating normally was on my shoulders. Her chances of being able to walk or crawl was on my shoulders. All of, all of her chances at success in life, I was carrying on my shoulders thinking it was all on me as her mother. And it was just this heavy burden I was never meant to carry. And I think I just, I did it alone for so long because um, when I found out about her diagnosis, I went online, I even joined a Facebook group at the worst of it, trying to find answers, trying to reach out to people, trying to see if anybody else had similar symptoms and it was so overwhelming that I only did it twice 
mm-hmm. <laughs> in like four years where I mm-hmm. was out, reached out and every kid has such different things. It, w- it was so heavy and too much when I was, you know, new. I was so new, the new mom, it was just too much stimulus, too much, too overwhelming um, that I just shut the computer and I never looked back. Mm -hmm. And I would tell myself, look harder, look elsewhere, you know, reach out to, you know, the 22Q clinic, give them your name, ask them to give your name to somebody else. I know there's HIPAA regulations and who knows what, but perhaps ask and push hard enough, you'll never know. And just find a person, find a mom, find a group, mm-hmm. find something because it is so powerful in groups. You mm-hmm. know, we went to that retreat. Mm-hmm. I have never felt so heard and understood and it feels so good. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just carrying it for so long and I didn't need to. There's this whole group of women who were walking the same journey with the same frustrations, knew exactly what I was going through. And we could have been there for each other. And I was too scared, mm-hmm. too scared to hear bigger stories, harder stories, and, you know, feel any more emotion than mm-hmm. I already had, mm-hmm. but I should have, it would have been, I think in the long run, much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I think it, that support finding that support, that, that group that we call ourselves the tribe, the <laughs> whatever it is find them and lean on them. And it's just that feeling of like, that you're not alone. (laughs) You're not alone in this crazy, confusing world that you're just trying to survive in. And you want the best for your kid and you just want them to be happy and healthy. And that's all you want. Thank you for sharing that. What other advice could you give any parents maybe listening? I would say to take it slow (laughs) and perhaps um, don't dive in like I did head first, read all the things because it's too much. You're like drinking out of a, you know, a hose and, mm-hmm. it's, and you're not, you're not meant to take in that much information all at one time. Mm-hmm. And it's just so overwhelming. And you don't even know what your story is going to be because mm-hmm. your story could be very much different than somebody else's. I would also say that for new, new parents do not go with normal doctors. I don't care if you have to fly or drive 20 hours, like figure it out, trying to find the resources. A 22Q clinic with doctors in the know is, is worth everything. And it is a game changer. One more thing is just like to not, to not ever lose hope because at, at my very bottom, I was, I was losing hope and I was just, just didn't know what the future was going to hold, but without hope, you're not going to be there for your child. You're not going to be there for yourself. You're not going to be able to take care of anybody. And you don't know what the future holds. Mm -hmm. I would have never had any idea that Zuri would be off medication running around as a typical four-year-old when on her one-year birthday, we were in a much different place. Mm -hmm. And you just don't know what the future holds. So have faith, pray, Mm -hmm. hope, Mm -hmm. find support, find people who will pray with you. Yeah. That's really good advice. And yeah, just have hope. And in those darkest moments for you, you know, what was your light? Like, what was your release? What was your thing? I know you mentioned you like hiking and and walking and stuff. What was your outlet in those stressful times? I journaled a lot. I, I want to be good at journaling. I want to be, you know, one of those people, but truthfully, the only time I journal is when I'm desperately crying and cursing and angry and just getting all the emotions out. They, it's like poison. I'm just spewing it all the frustration, the, the hurt, the questioning Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. journal it all out and get it out of my system. And then also work out. I haven't worked out for a while now. (laughs) I was religious (laughs) about working out when when it was so hard, like the endorphins, I don't know if I needed the drug hit or what, but the endorphins I got, and then just, just working out to get all of the stress and everything off was huge. And mm-hmm. then also just truthfully, I would question God <laughs> so much. Why? And I mean, I don't even know all the questions. 
And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It was just, I could choose hope or not. Mm-hmm. And what person was I going to be? And did I trust that? Did I draw the short end of the straw? You know? And, mm-hmm. and so I think throughout reading the Bible and looking at scriptures, standing on God's word, pleading and praying, and were just mm-hmm. my encouragement. Mm-hmm. It is. It's too much for parents, caregivers of kiddos with 22Q to do alone. And also I'm glad that you had all those outlets and different ways of handling or working through all of that. That's great. Thank you. And my last question today for you would be, what has your daughter taught you? I think just to stop and live in the moment again, like I used to and get back to my, my more pleasant personality where I can just go with the flow and take chances and take risks. And again, act like I'm not one of the small percent and just, I don't know, live like tomorrow doesn't matter and just soak in today mm-hmm. because I never thought we'd be where we are with Zuri. And I don't know what the future holds soaking in the day and enjoying her and just looking at her and remembering where she's come mm-hmm. and just enjoying her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so nice. Yes. Just enjoying them. It is. It's, it's hard as you're not the only person I've talked to. It's, it's hard when you have a medically fragile child to remember like, Oh wait, I'm still their parent that we're, we're supposed to like play and have fun and, just finding the energy some days when you're in it, like really in it is hard, but that's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Laura. This was great. Do you want to add anything else? I just feel like this whole community, you know, the tribe and it, and it feels so good because when, you know, we talked about Zuri's potential future surgery she has coming up, I know exactly who I'm going to reach out to, to ask about what doctors and what procedures and where did you have it done? And, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations that we can have, it's, it's so good. And then we know the journey we're on is forever. It's mm-hmm. not like we're fixing the heart. We're done. We're going through school together. We're going through teenage years and then into high school. And we're going to be finding support with one another as we all walk this journey together. And so I don't know. I just thank you kind of for putting our stories out there, making it so we're, we're not alone. And we, we, it's not like we normalize it, but we can all find strength together and just know that, you know, everybody has their story and their story is powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone's story is extremely powerful. And I want to thank you for saying those kind words. That's very sweet, but that's the whole point of this podcast is just to connect and unite and mind us all that we're not alone in this 22Q world. So, but thank you again. Laura, thank you again for sharing your beautiful little girl with us. I'm so glad she's doing well and you are an amazing mom. And for anyone who would like to contact me, you can reach me at 22qpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, or if you're interested on being on this podcast. Until next time, thank you again. Please share this and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And never forget, 22q family, that you are not alone. Mm